This is Anarima. This is Diera. And welcome back to Pass the Mic. This week we're talking about immigration and ideas surrounding family and status, as well as America's hypocrisy when it comes to immigration and immigrants. We also explore the American dream and its feasibility now and whether or not it ever existed. This is a two-part episode, so make sure you stay tuned for part two after our first part. And now we're going to introduce our creative of color. My name is Zoha Barwani, and I'm a senior studying math of finance and risk management, as well as theater directing. Last week, I put on my senior thesis, which was a play that I've been working on and writing for about eight months now. I started writing it in January, um, during the time that a lot of attention was being drawn to the brutal methods that were used to deter refugees from settling in parts of northern France in efforts to cross into the UK. Um, The camp there was cleared in 2016, and by cleared I mean they literally set fire to it, Um, but those people, about 10,000 of them, still had nowhere to go, and so they sort of started coming back and and recollecting and... um, They came back uh, to Calais and the police uh, used some like really brutal methods on uh, 15 and 16 year olds um, who didn't speak the language and didn't understand that they were being asked to leave and they still had nowhere to go. So um, there were a lot of reports of tear gas, rubber bullets, um, chemical agents that left like lesions on the skin, um, all sorts of different really horrible methods to kind of deter people from settling. Um, and this was really, this was really uh, formative to me because um, I grew up in the United Arab Emirates and a lot of my really close friends, knew people or had family who were being forced to flee due to the crises um, in their home countries. And many of them didn't make it and many of them got stopped in these kind of camps. Um, And something that I learned in the process was that like the people, like we often in media see refugees being portrayed as like poor or just uh, like homeless or like not having anywhere to go. And yeah, they don't have anywhere to go, but they have to spend like a lot, a lot of money in order to even get to a place where they can just like live in those really horrible conditions. Um, and they're, they're like smuggled across into those areas. Um, and it's, it's like really, really difficult for them, but the, like the media doesn't do a good job of portraying like the actual things that they're going through. So in writing Displace, I really wanted to give a more accurate representation of the experience. And I also wanted to partner with Michigan Refugee Assistance Program because I wanted the audience to know that um, it's not that different from our everyday and like it's happening in communities very close to us as well. Like very similar methods are being employed by the ICE. And I didn't want the audience to feel like, oh, that's happening in France. So it's not my problem Um, because it is our problem and it is our responsibility and it is our obligation to kind of not turn a blind eye and to do our part. So that's why I wrote Displace. You can follow my work at zohabarwani.com or at zoha.barwani on Instagram. 
Abbasi. I'm a senior studying community and global public health. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm a first-generation immigrant. So I was born in Pakistan um, in 1996, and I was there with my two older brothers and my mom and dad until I was four years old. And when I was four years old, both of my brothers had um, almost completed high school, and my dad wanted to immigrate to the United States because he just, um, his uncle lived here in San Diego and thought that he would just have better opportunities um, for himself and his family. So we applied for a international visa um, and we got approved in about eight to nine months. So it wasn't that hard of a process back then. I believe this was 2001. Um, so when I was four years old, I immigrated straight to Arizona and we lived there up until the I was at the age of 12. So I completed elementary and some of middle school there from what I recall. And this entire time, I believe for like the first four years, I was still on my international visa. So we were um, constantly like afraid that if we do not get approved for a green card, we are going to get kicked out of the country and not be able to um, fulfill like the dreams or the hopes that we did desire when we immigrated here in the first place. So after a few years, uh, we hired an immigration lawyer, which was probably one of the most um, expensive experiences of our lives because they're not the cheapest people to work with. And the immigration lawyer had expedited our process of receiving a green card. And this was when George W. Bush was the president. And my oldest brother had it the toughest because he was not born in Pakistan. He was born in the UK. And at that time, it was harder for him to receive a green card because of his student, like because of his student visa. So he for the longest time, he was working under my younger brother's social security because he didn't know how, he didn't have the access to get a social security number at that time in that year and also his process of receiving a green card could not be expedited um as much as ours could because we were still we didn't have student visas we still had international visas his had expired earlier so it was just a whole matter of working with this immigration lawyer and expediting all of our processes at the age of 12, my father got laid off from his job. He was working 60-hour hour weeks from what I can remember. And on the weekends, my mom used to make samosas and sell them at a local Indian store just to kind of get by. That's how we were living. Um, I was still young at that time, so I don't remember much, but I do remember that we were living paycheck to paycheck in Arizona. And um, it was hard for my dad to help me like do all the things that my friends were doing at that time in elementary school and middle school so I already felt kind of secluded from everything and I didn't really have a good social circle growing up because it was always like me versus them and all that rhetoric that was going around at the time and so when I was 12 my dad got laid off and both my brothers had successfully started university and my dad realized that the America that he thought would offer him all these opportunities did not. It in turn failed him. Um, 
And it wasn't just about like getting a green card and how the immigration lawyer was expensive. It was a matter of not feeling safe in this country and not having the health care that he deserved and knowing that when he does retire, if he would live a successful life, he wouldn't receive the social security benefits that a lot of people do receive. So um, when I was 12, we did move back to Pakistan and I completed high school there. And my dad is has been working for the government since then. And my mom has her own boutique. And now I feel like they're thriving to the fullest of their ability because they're living in the home that raised them and they don't feel secluded or othered. I'm Sandra Perez, and I am a third-year student studying BCN in Spanish. I am um, I was considered a migrant um, farm worker student for a while, and I am also a DACA recipient. Um, my pronouns are she, her, hers. So my story begins when my 22-year-old mother um, crossed the border with my five-year-old brother, and I was th- three years old at the time. I had just turned three years old in December. Um, we came here because my dad paid coyotes a grand for each of us to cross over and, you know, have that experience, the American dream. And in a way, we were fleeing from poverty because my dad has always emphasized the fact that we are we are living better lives than he could have ever provided us back in Mexico. Um, so with that said, I was born in Hidalgo, Mexico, um, and I acknowledge that my story is very similar to thousands of DACA recipients here in the United States. After we came to the United States, we ended up in, we came from Arizona to Florida. And in Florida, we faced a lot of barriers such as language barriers. I remember my mother didn't know how um, U.S. currency even worked. Um, But we navigated it as a family. And after a while, we decided to move to Michigan, um, mostly looking for temporary jobs. My parents currently and have always had seasonal farm working and factory working jobs. I was considered a migrant student because we traveled back and forth from Florida to Michigan to Georgia and so on for a couple years until we decided to settle in Michigan. Um, Back in Florida, my dad would work um, picking oranges and here he would work picking apples and blueberries. So that has been most of my life. And um, once I got to high school, I didn't really understand how much being undocumented would affect me later on post like post high school um and I didn't find out I was undocumented until I was in fifth grade and I asked my mother if I could go to college um and so now that I'm here at college um it is difficult navigating um spaces that I'm not meant to be in but for the most part it's you know, feeling that guilt that I am living a life that my parents aren't um, and fitting into, you know, that dreamer narrative that only uh, 4.0 valedictorians are are worthy of citizenship, which is not 
true. Um, so it is a very, very toxic narrative um, that I have learned um, through finding a community here. Um, so I do, um, I do navigate this, you know, university um, through the help of Scope, which is a an organization on campus that was founded by DACA and undocumented students. Um, they now um, we've included allies now um, to better support um, students from these backgrounds and helping each other with policy that we don't we 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 keep encountering every day that it gives students a barrier I guess an extra barrier that we didn't think we'd have so I am not sure whether I qualify as a first gen or second gen but my parents immigrated here and then we moved around quite a bit um, I was lucky to be born here so I didn't have to jump through the same number of hurdles that they had to, but my sister is adopted and she's from Pakistan. So we moved to Pakistan in 2006 um, and we were waiting and waiting. And in Pakistan, you have to jump through quite a few hoops to be matched with um, like a, a child to adopt even though there are so many. Um, so we adopted through the Edi Foundation, but we don't have any records of Elisa's parents or any, um, any kind of DNA um, testing or anything that would connect her to um, anyone in Pakistan, really. So we, uh, we made up a lot. <laughs> we made up her birthday. Um, we made up like where she was born. And uh, then we tried to come back with her because that was the plan, like bring her back. Um, but we got stopped in London. We weren't allowed to come back. And at the time, coming back meant to Canada. That was where we had left from. Um, so we got stopped in London for about three weeks while they processed paperwork and, um, and just tried to like give her some kind of identity. Um, and, and like we were fortunate, we were able to bring her back and she was able to kind of grow up um, in Canada for a little bit. We moved around again after that. We, we were really fortunate overall that she was able to um, grow up here. One of the really unexpected parts of this whole journey was um, it's pretty taboo to talk about adoption in the brown community. So Elisa was actually brought up for the first eight years being told that she was born in Canada. And so she would talk to her friends and, and like in order to make her feel less like an alien coming back to that kind of topic, um, my parents like convinced her that she was born in Canada and that that was where she had spent like the early part of her life. Um, so it's been kind of a journey in that sense because Elisa has now been told where she's from and she has had a lot of questions, um, particularly about like identity and what being born in Pakistan means. Um, and uh, there are always questions at the border when we want to visit family in Canada, like why is one person not born here. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of stigma around 
a lot of things, but mostly just like we just make a lot of ways to kind of divide. And it's really scary when that's like in your own family as well. Um, because like my grandparents are are definitely subject to that kind of taboo and they've made Elisa feel like she doesn't belong. So I think that it's really scary to, because my grandparents have also been othered in that way, but to know that those kind of ties don't go away um, and they just sort of perpetuate generations. And it's scary to think that like my grandparents are kind of projecting what society projected onto them, onto my sister now. Um, so that's just been something that we're we're kind of navigating. Um, but but we were really lucky to already have been pretty established when we left and uh, to kind of come back to a welcome place in society. So you kind of hinted at the idea of like being an alien or whatever and how we in America have a big problem with immigration, particularly with this new era of like presidency, but even before that, um, and this hypocrisy that we uphold because we're the land of immigrants in the melting pot. Um, so does anyone have anything to say to that, just the hypocrisy that we uphold and how that is um, integral to us dealing with immigration or just the ideas around like immigration? I think that um, especially like, immigrating here at a young age and seeing my parents like try to foster a life for themselves here I feel like America's hypocrisy lies in the sense that you know immigrants are the ones doing all of the work here um it's the reason that this country's economy has been able to keep itself up all these years even after all the crashes but I guess my biggest concern is that even as an immigrant, like, on this campus, I, to this day, don't know the resources that are available to me. And navigating around that has been, like, quite traumatizing. So I can't even imagine, like, someone who, like, people like my parents who, my mom always had trouble speaking English. So, like, someone who can't even communicate in this country, how will they know, like, what resources they have and what their rights are? Um I mean, I guess I'm privileged in the sense that I, I'm studying here at this, like, prestigious institution, and there's a lot that's been kind of handed to me, um, whether I deserved it or not. But people who are literally fleeing their homeland to come into a different country, and, like, yet this country still doesn't have the, the ability, quote-unquote, to, to tell people, hey, like, this is what's available to you, and it's as much available to you as it is to citizens of this country. I think America's hypocrisy lies in the fact that there is an imbalance and injustice on how they view European immigrants and people of color immigrants. There's definitely more dehumanizing terms and, you know, alien for immigrants who come into this country and are essentially foreigners. But realizing that this country was actually built on the back of like backs of slaves and ind indigenous people, you know, the genocide of indigenous people is something we have to consider in that European immigrants actually did more harm um, 
but also realizing that this new wave, this new era of immigrants in this country is, you know, we're trying to prosper. We're trying to have a better life, you know, have the American dream. But in a way, we're kind of hindered or we're attacked. We're the scapegoat for um, a lot of policy, a politics going on um, simply because they need some some blame or some people to blame and it is very unfortunate um but as as immigrants we have to recognize that we are here for a reason and we're worthy we deserve to stay here and we deserve to live a life that is not filled with fear or uncertainty um just a better life. Dying it back into these hopes and dreams that we have when we enter this country. Um, and that goes hand in hand with the American dream. That's such a big pull. So our question is, is the American dream even real? And what is the American dream? I think I can speak on this because the American dream didn't work out very well for my parents and they ended up moving to Canada for a significant portion of their life in order to get reestablished. Uh, when they first came to the States, they landed in New York and they tried to make that work. But my grandfather on my mom's side, he had a stroke at a very young age and then proceeded to have six more strokes. Um, so my, my grandma refers to my mom as her son because... She was in school during this time. She went to SUNY Buffalo, but she would work for like eight hours a day and she would study for like three hours a day and she would go to classes for another number of hours a day and then she would um, do home care because she was studying to become an occupational therapist. So she would sleep three hours a night for four years um, and during this time would commute back and forth because my grandparents couldn't afford the rent and didn't find a family um, or any kind of community in New York, so they ended up moving to Toronto. So my mom worked to support her own rent, her own tuition, and her, her parents' rent, and their shop rent, because they were trying to start a meat business um, and like an Indian grocery store. So... I think that when we talk about the American dream, there's a lot that's left out of the narrative, just of, I think everybody knows somebody who's like come to this country and worked an inhumane number of hours to make ends meet um, and just wasn't able to. So I think that we really need to reevaluate that idea of like two children and white picket fence house and if you pull yourself up from the bootstraps and like work hard then you will you will win <laughs> um, because I think that it is really really difficult to like make it in America in the the traditional sense that we we've come to associate with it and I think that if people are coming here to put in the work and, and are skilled and, and even if they're unskilled if they're coming in from like they're fleeing these kind of circumstances like it's it's just human dignity, you know, to to give people who are willing to to make to make this country better and and to make their lives better the chance to do so.
Okay, so um, with the experiences that I've had as well as the experiences that my parents have had, I, I'll address your second question first and then go back to the first one. I don't think that the American dream is real. I don't think it's a concept. I feel like everyone comes here and makes their own American dream, whatever that is for them. Um, I feel like we can only achieve the American dream as immigrants, as refugees, as asylum seekers, as DACA recipients um, by dismantling the system that only um, is made to have certain people, um, non-people of color and people who are born here to be successful because it just creates way more loopholes in the process for the rest of us and there's no way that we can achieve any sort of dream if that's the case. Um, but I guess seeing my dad immigrate here um, with me and my mom and my brothers when I was at the age of four, I didn't comprehend much of it. But as soon as I started growing up more, I realized that my dad was not home as much as I would like for him to be because he was working 60-hour weeks and he was working um, – at a manufacturing company. So it was a lot of like precarious working conditions and he also was not treated the best and it was always like paycheck to paycheck living. That was certainly not the American dream that he had hoped for, but I think the only thing that pushed him to go to work every day was the fact that he believed that, okay, you know what, today's the day that something is going to change, that we're going to get our green card and I will be able to, you know, get out of this like employment and find something better for myself. But that every day turned into six years of the same thing over and over again. He came to a point where both my brothers were studying at Puma Community College, which is a community college in Tucson, Arizona, and they were taking full credit course loads on financial aid, one of them was, the one that was not on a student visa. And they were also working at Exxon gas stations for basically like they were working night shifts because that's the only thing that they could do. And I remember they tell me to this day that every time they'd get a paycheck, they wouldn't be able to really like spend it on themselves because they would have to give it to my parents um, because that's just how we paid rent. So in my sense, that was definitely not why we immigrated here. That wasn't the American dream that we had hoped for. And that's truly what drove my parents back to Pakistan. Like, oh, like they didn't want to stay here anymore. They're like this, we've waited 12 years and nothing's happened so far. And nothing is going to happen. Even after they received their green card, like they were just not hopeful whatsoever. So I don't think that the American dream is a thing. And I don't think that, I think that if we continue to live in this belief that the system is made to like, serve immigrants, then nothing's going to happen and it's not going to be progressive. The American dream means something different for everybody. For my family, it meant having, um, having a roof over our heads, having food at the table, having basic needs met that wouldn't have been able, that they wouldn't have been able to have back in our home country. Um, I think that the American dream isn't necessarily something they had in mind 
I think it was more trying to survive. Um, and that came to the expense of a lot of facing a lot of adversity, facing a lot of struggles, separating themselves from their family back home. And even now, we don't have medical insurance. We don't have, um, we don't have rights that other people have, but we still remain here because it's something that it's something better than what we, it's something better than we could ever have back home. And so the American dream, I don't think the American dream includes, you know, living in a trailer park or being in fields for so many hours and being underpaid or not being able to afford surgery. It's, it, there's really a lot of struggles we faced. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we have each other and, and we keep going because we know that, you know, what the food that we have here, you know, like cereal or even like ramen noodles is way better than just beans or anything back home. So yeah, I feel like we're, we're doing better. our first part make sure you click over to part two to hear the rest of our